I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind. Our goal with this podcast is to report on breaking science-related news stories, but do it in a really responsible way. To go into the actual science behind each story, and then have a realistic discussion of the impacts and future implications of each one. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. Today, on the top of the show, we're going to be talking about whether Canada is colder than Mars. So this is a story which uh, got a lot of popularity this year in the major news media. The headlines read something along the lines of Mars is warmer than parts of Canada or the US. That's from (laughs) cbc.ca. Okay. And uh, essentially how this all started was off of a tweet a tweet by a Mars weather Twitter account. So essentially this account gives you the daily current conditions from the Curiosity rover. But essentially this one day in January this year, they also tweeted that just a heads up, the uh, high of Curiosity is much higher than uh, most of Canada at the same point in time. (laughs) Yeah, so this day, Curiosity in the Gale Crater on Mars had a high of negative eight and much of Canada on the same day reached a high of negative 20. Okay, wow. Yeah, so it's uh, it's quite the difference. But this got me thinking, because the stories didn't really have much more than that simple comparison. It got me thinking of, well, is this rare for Mars? Is this standard? Is there a range around this? Right. And what would it actually feel like if you were standing on Mars right now? First of all, if you're going on average planetary temperature, you cannot say that Mars is warmer than the Earth. The Earth's average temperature is about 14 degrees Celsius. Mars is negative 63 degrees Celsius. Okay, so a bit of a difference there. It's it's a bit of a difference there, for sure. Right. So this is one instance on Mars is the first thing to remember. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of factors that can cause variation. For example, if you're at the equator around Mars, you could have a high of about 20 degrees Celsius. You know, nice warm summer day. Right, that's fine. Or if you're at the poles, you could have a low of negative 153 degrees Celsius. Which is just south of unpleasant. Uh, just south of unpleasant, I'd say. That's definitely in the range of <laughs> death. <laughs> You know, that's not the only difference to Earth is this big gradient between the poles and the equator. Mm-hmm. One of the big differences is the atmosphere is so thin. Right. So so that's what accounts for the huge variability in temperature then? Totally. Right. So, you know, on the Earth, we've got about 100 kilopascals of pressure above us. Okay. Pascals are the, are the, are the unit of atmospheric pressure. Right. So there's just a, a lot of air out there. There's a lot of air pushing down on our heads. Mm-hmm. On Mars, there's about 0.6 kilopascals of air. Right. So it's about 0.6% of what we have on Earth. And this makes a huge difference because all of that air has the capacity to hold heat. Mm-hmm. So if there isn't that capacity of the air to hold heat, it's really easy to heat up the air or cool down the air on very short timescales. Right. So when an area is in the sun, it's going to get really hot. And then as soon as it's out of it, all that heat goes away. Exactly. And to top it off, most of Earth's heat is in fact held in its oceans, which are extremely good at holding lots of heat. And there's none of those on Mars. (laughs) Yes. Although possibly the remnants of them. Exactly. Yes. Very, very true. So, I mean, really the fundamental assumption which goes into these news stories is that they're comparing how one would feel on Earth and Mars. Mm -hmm. And 
that actually has a lot to do with the thin atmosphere as well, too. Because a lot of the reason we feel cold on Earth is something known as wind chill. Yep, absolutely. It's the temperature, and then what that is with wind chill is totally different. Completely. So this is essentially the cooling effect that we feel by air blowing past our skin. Okay. And as air blows past us, it actually carries the heat away from our bodies and into the air. Right. So now on Mars, because the atmosphere is so thin. Let me guess. No wind? No. Well, there is wind. Okay. There's definitely wind on Mars. It's just because the atmosphere is so thin, wind blows less air. So the air blowing past you can hold much less heat. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So it means that you can't actually compare temperatures on Mars to the Earth directly. Because the wind chill is totally different. Because the wind chill is totally different and they'd feel completely different. Now, a researcher last year noticed this comparison and thought, well, we need a way to do this. (laughs) So... They created a uh, an Earth-equivalent temperature scale for Mars, right? Right. So this is essentially calculating the wind chill, or the lack thereof, which you'd feel on Mars. So in other words, how it would actually feel, what the temperature would feel like if you were on Mars. Exactly. With your skin exposed to the atmosphere. Yes, precisely. <laughs> so this is a much better way to compare temperatures on Mars and the Earth. So let's look at the day in question. The main news story was published on January 8th. Okay. And on January 8th, Curiosity, in Gale Crater on Mars, had a high temperature of negative 8 degrees Celsius. All right, that's bearable. Now, the next thing we need is wind speed, and that's actually quite difficult to get, because Curiosity has a wind sensor, but it's never really worked properly. It's one of the few instruments that hasn't worked perfectly on this rover. Okay. And that's understandable. I mean, they did send it to another planet. Something might break. It can happen. Let's assume that the wind speed was not insane. Let's assume it was less than 100 kilometers an hour. Okay. If the wind speed was absolutely maximum, at the maximum cooling effect at 100 kilometers an hour, that negative 8 degrees Celsius would feel like negative 3 degrees Celsius. And if there was no wind at all, that negative 8 degrees measured by Curiosity would feel like 5 degrees. That's positive 5 degrees. Wow. So both feeling warmer than it would if you were on the Earth. Okay, so that's actually quite surprising. It really is. So this actually increases the validity of this story because Mars would actually feel a lot warmer than Earth (laughs) in that case. Yeah. Yeah. So some times of day on Mars, it would actually feel warmer than, say, being in Toronto. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So... Like, I mean, as another example, if we look at the nighttime low for that same day on January 8th, the low was negative 70 degrees Celsius. Oh, very cold. Very cold. However, that could be as warm as negative 10 degrees Celsius if there was no wind at all. Or it could be as cold as negative 35 degrees Celsius if there was 100 kilometer an hour winds. Wow. That makes a huge difference. It is a huge difference. And the low in Montreal that day, which is where I currently am was negative 26 degrees Celsius. (laughs) And with a wind speed, which was actually quite low that day, only 12 kilometers an hour, Hmm. the feels-like temperature was negative 36 degrees. Interesting. Yeah. So it fell quite dramatically on Earth as a result of wind, but on Mars, the uh, equivalent that you'd feel is uh, actually quite balmy. (laughs) That's pretty cool. So uh, not too many real scientific implications there, but it's good to know that if you happen to be on Mars at exactly the right time, you would not be too much colder than being in Montreal. It's cool because it actually makes the comparison kind of valid. Yeah. Neat. Yeah. So this article in the Daily Mail 
had the headline, Have scientists found the elixir of youth? Gene that destroys unhealthy cells is found to extend the lives of fruit flies by more than 60%. Whoa, why haven't I heard about this? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a pretty amazing headline there. Yeah. The idea that we can increase the lifespan of an organism by more than half of its normal lifespan is pretty amazing. 150, here I come. Yeah, exactly. We started to look into this. So what what is this really about? Mm-hmm. A bunch of researchers basically found a gene which is responsible for removing unfit cells that they refer to as loser cells in this paper. When this gene is present, these loser cells are marked for apoptosis, which is Basically, when a cell is asked to commit suicide. Asked? How so? Basically, it's marked by the body. Okay. Or the organism. And the cell self-destructs, releasing its contents into the organism, which are usually reabsorbed. It's also known as programmed cell death. All right. We already know that there are systems in the body that destroy cells that are broken and are not doing their jobs properly. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about this gene is that it doesn't target broken cells with serious debilitating mutations. Instead, it actually targets cells that are just slightly unfit, that aren't working quite as well as to be expected. Okay. Yeah, so what makes a cell unfit? Some examples are loss of certain proteins, which can make the cell slightly slower to reproduce, or other unexpected mutations. So the researchers named this gene Azotl. Uh, sorry, Azotl? Azotl. Is that yes. named after something? It is named after something. It's actually named after an ancient Aztec monster, which is said Ooh. to protect the fish in rivers and lakes by luring fishermen to their deaths. Huh. So uh, An environmentalist. Yeah, a good case of uh, actual creative naming and scientific discovery. Absolutely. Yeah. So they affectionately call it uh, Azot in the paper. Okay. That's how it's referred. So... These fruit flies that they were testing normally had two copies of the gene, Mm -hmm. and they found that by inserting a third copy, they were able to increase the lifespan of the flies by 50 to 60%. Wow. Yeah. What is the lifespan of a fly? Lifespan of a fly is less than a day. Okay. So they actually got these fruit flies living multiple days, which is cool. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, And in general, they had better tissue health as well. In flies where they removed these genes, their lifespan was reduced and their tissues degraded faster. Are you saying that this this gene which destroys these slightly unfit cells is a good thing? It's a phenomenal thing. So it's a phenomenal thing. So it's good that we want to take out these, these slightly unfit cells. Absolutely. All right. It was previously thought that cells would compete for resources and that selection would be determined that way. Because mm-hmm. we know that Cells that are functional but less fit than others are weeded out, but we didn't exactly know how. It was assumed that there was something sort of Darwinian going on, where the ones that were less fit weren't able to absorb resources as easily and they would die earlier. Some sort of natural selection within my body. Exactly. But what these researchers observed is that rather than that, there's something very specific, an active process going on to remove the cells that are flagged as being unfit. This is an incredibly interesting discovery, and I don't know about you, but my first thought when I initially read it was, cancer? Yeah. Are these cells that could lead to cancer? Absolutely. But interestingly, the original study actually says that they found no correlation between this azot gene and tumor suppression. Okay. And this azot gene that works in the fruit flies, is it the same one that works in us? We don't know what it does in us or how much of it, but we do know that it's present. Uh So it could be a leftover gene that doesn't show any expression in humans, but we do know that it is in the human genome. Okay. Which is why this is such an important discovery. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, so there's no link between azot and tumor suppression that they found. So instead, they theorized that this fitness-based selection would be most important in maintaining the organ's efficiency. The idea being 
if this is occurring, for instance, in your liver cells, your liver, as it begins to become less efficient as you get older, that some of that is happening because there's cells in there that work, but they just don't work as well as others. Right. The idea being, if we could find a way to boost the expression of this Azot gene, we could weed those out earlier and potentially live a lot longer. Right. So this is just upkeeping your body's almost fitness. Exactly. To an older age. Totally. So we're not removing the broken stuff. It's just removing the stuff that's not quite as good as the other stuff. Awesome. What's the next step towards trying this in humans? Is that the goal? The goal, of course, is eventually to improve human longevity with it. At this point, it's a newly discovered gene. So this really indicates that we should look into it more. But there's no real roadmap or like, you know, rush to clinical trials or anything like that. This is a long way off at this point still. Exactly. It's a long way off. But hey, maybe within our lifetimes. Of course, the the bigger the organism is, the more issues can, that can come with that. Like toxicity wasn't tested in the flies at all. So we're increasing their lifespan from, you know, under one day to just over a day. Mm-hmm. We don't know what effect this gene being super active will cause in organisms that live a lot longer. Right. We have no idea whether or not the the scaling of this effect yeah. The size of organism would be appropriate. Because even though the fly's lifespan's increased by around 60%, that's still many orders of magnitude fewer cell divisions than would occur in a human over a year, even. Of course. So that's all we've got for you today. Hopefully you enjoyed our adventure into this week's science news. Check back next week for two more stories. Did you see something in the news that you'd like us to cover? Maybe a headline that seems too good to be true, or a story that no one's explained clearly enough? Give us a shout at stories at doubleblindscience.com. See you next week.